Welcome everyone to the podcast Unanswered Questions with Pastor Tim Cole. This is a podcast where we talk about tough theological and Christian living questions sent in by people just like you. Our hope is that listening will strengthen your confidence in God's Word, helping you to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. If you have any questions, please send them to questionsforpastortim at gmail.com. Thanks, team. Zach probably needs no introduction here this morning. Uh, he's a Northside graduate, went on to PBA, and then to DTS, and was awarded a PhD at the University of Edinburgh in New Testament, and he serves as Associate Professor of New Testament at RTS in Oviedo, or better known as Orlando. He is going to expound Hebrews 6, 1 through 12, one of the most difficult passages in all of the scripture, and probably one that's rather unfamiliar to you in terms of your upbringing and how he will present it today. And it seems a long way from the restoration series that I've been doing in Paul's epistles, but the good news is, is that this passage is related to how to restore someone who has fallen into transgression. So with that in mind, I'm going to ask you to put your hands together right now and give Zach a big RBC welcome. Zach, welcome. Hold your applause till the end, please. Uh, thanks so much for uh, having us and welcoming us. Uh, it's always good to be back. It's lovely to see everyone. Uh, if I don't get a chance to talk to you, well, uh, let me at least say for now, it's good to see you. Um, I wish I got the memo about having a mustache up here. Yeah. <laughs> if, if I had known, I would have done my best, but it probably would not have worked out very well, so all, all for the best anyway. Yeah, so Dad uh, asked me this week if I'd come and uh, preach on Hebrews 6, which covers the topic of apostasy, which is not a cheery topic, and it's not an easy topic. It's actually very difficult and quite challenging. And if you were listening carefully to the passage, then it might have made you a bit nervous. It's one of those passages that kind of like gives you a jolt. And if it didn't give you a jolt, then you weren't listening. It's meant to do that. It's, it's meant to shock you. Uh, and that's a good thing, and we're going to kind of explore what that is uh, for this morning. But uh, we need to talk about apostasy. I'm going to define apostasy as we go, but we need to talk about apostasy for three reasons. First, the Bible talks about apostasy a lot. So this passage, Hebrews 6, talking about people who fall away from the church. The Bible talks about this a lot. We may not actually realize that the Bible talks about this so much, but that's because we tend to veer away from passages that upset us, and we ignore them. But if we think carefully about how often the Bible talks about passages where someone is falling away, the Bible is full of these passages. Jesus talks about it, just to name one. I remember many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name and prophesy it? I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. That's talking about apostasy there. Those who appear to be a part of the Christian community who end up not truly being a part of that community. The Apostle Paul talks about uh, apostasy. He talks about people who make shipwreck of the faith. 
uh, as we see the writer of the Hebrews talks about apostasy, not just here in chapter 6, but also chapter 10 and elsewhere. Then the Apostle Peter talks about apostasy. Uh, the Apostle Jude talks about apostasy. The Apostle John, in his letters, 1 John, talks about apostasy. It's all over the Bible. We've got to deal with it. And some of us, we don't have the terminology or the categories to understand it, so we're not sure what to make of it, but we need to talk about it this morning. Uh, second reason why we need to talk about this is that when the Bible does talk about apostasy, it talks about deadly seriousness. It's not some casual thing like armchair theologians can chat about this while you're, you know, drinking coffee. Uh, the Bible talks about apostasy with deadly seriousness, as we've already heard. I don't need to illustrate that for you anymore. You've heard it this morning. And then the third reason why we need to talk about apostasy is that, quite frankly, it's happening all around us. It's happening all around us. Um, so as I said, apostasy is not just sinning, right? As we'll see, we're going to read this passage. Apostasy doesn't mean you are sinning or even backsliding or have a sin problem. That's not apostasy. That's not what we're talking about. Apostasy is consciously and deliberately rejecting Jesus and leaving the Christian community, leaving the church. And that is happening left, right, and center. Um, this, this whole fad, this whole trend of deconstructing, I'm sure you've heard of this, deconstructing, not everyone who's deconstructing their faith is committing apostasy, but a lot of them are. They're reevaluating everything about their faith. They're questioning everything about their faith. They're going through this process of deconstructing, pulling it all apart. For many people, this leads directly to apostasy. And so we need to deal with this, because I'm sure if I ask for a show of hands this morning, how many of you know somebody close to you who is walking away or rejecting or deliberately walking away from the faith? I'm pretty sure it'd be close to 100% of us. And I mean people that are close to us, not just people we know, we saw on Facebook, blah, blah, blah. So we need to talk about this, and we need some categories and theological language to understand what's happening. And I think the book of Hebrews is a really good place to start, because Hebrews is both one of the worst, scariest apostasy passages, so we can deal with it head on. And it gives us a bit of more context, and we're going to read a few other passages in Hebrews that gives a, a bit better context to understand what's happening. So I ask for your forgiveness ahead of time. Dad asked me to preach about this. I've never preached on Hebrews 6 before. So this is uh, not technically a first time because I've actually given a lecture on apostasy back at RTS, uh, and it went kind of okay. So let's uh, get back into passage uh, this morning, chapter 6. Um, I just want to highlight for you the fact that what this passage is not saying, what this passage is saying, and why it's saying that. That's what we're going to focus on. What this passage is saying, what it's not saying, and why it's saying that. First, what is this not saying? We need to clear the, the ground here and make, make it very clear that the author of the, the Hebrews is not saying that you can lose your salvation. That's immediately what we thought we heard when he read that, that we can be saved and then unsaved. We can be born again and then not born again. We can be regenerate, we can be justified, we can be in union with Christ and then lose all of that. And I want to make it clear, that is not what the author to the Hebrews is actually saying. He's not talking about losing your salvation, and that is because true Christians 
will persevere. We're going to explore that as we go. But to, to put that in context, we need to step back and look, why did the writer of the Hebrews write the letter at all? He's not just talking about sin in this passage. Falling away is not just sinning. It's a very particular sin. And if you know about why the book of Hebrews was written, it's because that the audience, the Hebrews, were really, really tempted, not to sin, but to reject Jesus, specifically to fall back into Judaism, to fall back into Israelite temple worship. They had come to recognize Jesus, they heard the gospel, they were part of a Christian community, and they're saying, I think I want to go back. I think I want to go back. I think I want to give up this. I don't want to be a part of this anymore. I, I know what the Bible is saying. I know what the gospel says about Jesus. And I don't really want that anymore. I want to leave. I want to get out of town. I want to go back to where it's safe, where it feels comfortable. I want to go back to the temple, so to speak. So the writer of the Hebrews is not writing because these people are just, they have a sin problem. And they're in danger of falling away. It's a particular sin. It's a very specific sin. And it's that of reject deliberately, consciously, saying no to Jesus. I don't want Jesus anymore. I know what he's about and I don't want him anymore. That's what we mean when we talk about falling away. That's apostasy, to fall away from the Christian faith. So if you read the book of Hebrews, you'll see that all the way through, he's comparing the new covenant and the old. If you've read Hebrews recently or heard bits of it, he's comparing the new and the old. And he's like, the new is so much better than the old. Jesus is so much better than what you had in Judaism. Why would he make that comparison? Well, it's because they're tempted to go back. And he's saying, Jesus is so infinitely superior to any goat you could sacrifice. Let me tell you about your great high priest, the true son of God. Let me tell you about the infinite value of his blood, of the power of his resurrection. Don't give that up. Don't go back. So the whole book is making this comparison because the Hebrews are tempted to walk away from the faith. That's what he's talking about. Let me just support that a little bit further by you know, suggesting you read, look at verse, uh, what, chapter 4, uh, the end of chapter 4, uh, verse 14. Just to prove to you, we're not talking about normal, everyday, casual sin. We're talking about apostasy. Verse 14. This is how Jesus deals with sinners. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Keep going through chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Verse 2 is great. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. So if you caught that, the point being made is we're not talking about the wayward and the weak and the sinners. Jesus loves them. <laughs> That's why he's such a great high priest. So if you're this morning wayward and weak 
and beset with sin. Jesus died for you because of that. He can deal gently with you. Hebrews 6 is not about the wayward and the weak. It's about those who are walking away. So if you're nervous this morning, put yourself in a category. Have I consciously, deliberately denied Jesus and walked away? The fact that you're here this morning suggests you probably haven't. Maybe this morning you are wayward, you're weak, and you're sinning. That's not okay, but it's way better than apostasy. It's way better than apostasy. You need to get right. You need to deal with that. But you're not an apostate. I want to make that very, very clear. In fact, what we have in Christ is an eternal salvation that can cover all of our sins, both past and present and future. Look at chapter 10. There's a great verse you might want to memorize this verse. Chapter 10, verse 14. There's a world of theology in this verse. 10, verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That verse is so complex and so rich, I can't get into the, the details, but I just want to make the observation that the salvation you have in Christ is sufficient to preserve you till the end. And the sin we're talking about in Hebrews 6 is apostasy. It's deliberate, conscious rejection of Jesus. Now, you're probably looking at, go back to verse, chapter 6, and you're probably looking at that and being like, well, that sounds a lot like a Christian to me. Like, I get what you're saying, Zach, but that really looks like a Christian. To be a partaker of the Holy Spirit, to be enlightened, to taste the heavenly gift and the powers, uh, signs of the powers to come. That really looks and sounds like a Christian, doesn't it? Well, that's kind of the point. That's kind of the point. Because there is a kind of person that looks and sounds like a Christian. There's a kind of person that looks and sounds a lot like a Christian, but is not. They're a part of a Christian community. They might have been baptized. They might actually benefit from the blessings of the Holy Spirit in the community. And they might take the Lord's Supper. And they might even make a profession of faith. And they might sing. And they may not actually be regenerate, born again. They might not actually have been united by faith to Christ. And so that's what's missing in this passage, right? So all of this language sounds like a Christian, but actually falls a little bit short when it comes to talking about actual faith in Christ, actually believing in Christ, actually being born again, being regenerated, being united to Christ by the Holy Spirit. And so the point of the passage is that this looks like a Christian. But the fact that they depart shows that they never were truly regenerate, truly saved to begin with. Now, to, to give you an example of that, think about the difference between Judas and Peter. Think about the difference between Judas and Peter. What actually 
makes them different. Peter took a hard fall, didn't he? Actually, maybe a couple hard falls. Would it, would it be a stretch to call him a backsliding Christian at one point? Maybe that's not a stretch. And even after the Gospels, even into the book of Acts, and we read about how he, actually at one point, his life was out of step with the truth of the Gospel, and Paul had to confront him about that. So what's the difference between Peter and Judas? It's not that Peter never sins, and he's okay, and he never backslides. No, 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 he, he falls, and he falls hard. Judas, on the other hand, deliberately, consciously walks away. So what we're saying this morning is that someone like Peter, truly regenerate, truly born again, he will be preserved till the end. For by one sacrifice he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. But for Judas, who walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, we find out in the end he departed because he wasn't really a duck. He never really was. But here's the crazy thing, if you ever thought about this. When Jesus sent out the 12 and he sent out the 72 to preach the gospel and to cast out demons, Judas was among them. He was there. And we don't read any evidence that they went out, you know, sent two by two, and it's like, yeah, everything was great, Jesus. We were casting out demons, but Judas, when he tried, it didn't work. No evidence of that. We have every evidence that he looked like a regenerate, born-again Christian, follower of Jesus. So the reality is that we live in a mixed community. And that's actually our second point, right? So our first point is that what the passage is not saying is that you can lose your salvation. That's not what Hebrews is telling us. What it is saying now, we're going to get into what is this actually communicating to us, is that we live in a mixed community. We live in a community, a Christian community, that has wheat and tares. That has Peter's and Judas's. And that is alarming and weird to hear. And that's very unsettling that there are people among us that are talking the talk and even appear to be walking the walk. But their hearts aren't actually truly in it. Now, how is that possible? And Hebrews gives us a lot of helpful information on this. So just track back a couple chapters and look at chapter 3 and 4. I'm going to read a bit of chapter 3 here. Because the writer to the Hebrews makes a comparison between his own day and the Israelite community that came out of Egypt. And it's a really striking parallel. But uh, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 3. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. That's apostasy, to fall away. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now here's the key comparison, verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? It literally says their corpses fell in the wilderness. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is a wild parallel that's just been made. I wonder if you've ever thought about this, that the wilderness community, the Israelites, delivered out of Egypt, we stand in a parallel situation that they did. In fact, the comparison is remarkable. They were redeemed out of Egypt. They all passed through the Red Sea on dry ground. They ate the manna. They drank the water. They saw the rock give forth water. They saw the Egyptians destroyed. They got the law. They all got circumcised. And then when the law was pronounced, they said, we will do everything in the law. And then thousands of them perished. How is that possible? Because there's a difference between being an external, visible member of the community and having a regenerate, circumcised heart. And that's precisely the situation we have now that the writer of the Hebrews is describing. Those who have been, in a sense, redeemed out of Egypt. You've been enlightened. You know the truth. You've come to see it. You've come to recognize, ah, I understand what the gospel says. And I perhaps have been baptized. And perhaps have taken the Lord's Supper. And perhaps have made some sort of profession like, oh, I will do everything written in the law. And have the external marks, but not truly be regenerate. Not truly within being regenerate. We live in precisely the same situation. You may think that the book of Exodus was way long ago. It's real. It's now. And if you understand that, it's actually really helpful to understand what's happening with apostasy today. It actually makes a lot more sense that saying one thing and not actually having your heart born again is a completely different world apart. And the writer of the Hebrews is not the only one who actually does this. Paul makes a very similar comparison, and we don't need to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Corinthians really wanted to know if they could go eat uh, meat at an idol feast, uh, which is not something we think about very often, I don't think. But Paul's saying, hey, listen, weren't all the Israelites redeemed out of Egypt? And they all, you know, partook of the manna, they drank the water. He actually says they were baptized into Moses. And he actually says that Christ was there as the rock. They were in the same situation you are now. And they perished in the wilderness. They died by the thousands because they put the Lord to the test. So he makes a very similar comparison. It's not just unique to the book of Hebrews, if you want to follow that up in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It is saying then, 
is that we live in a mixed community just like the Israelites were. So uh, what is, just to reiterate, what is the actual problem with the Israelites? Why did they perish in the wilderness? And this is key for us to see. Why did they perish graphically, drastically in the wilderness? It's not because they were backsliding. It's not because they sinned. It was a particular sin. What was it? The very last line of chapter 3. So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Keep reading chapter 4, verse 1 through 2. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, for good news came to, uh, came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So again, that just reiterates the fact that what we're talking about is apostasy for people who do not truly believe. We're not talking about people who do believe and then become unsaved. They were never actually there. They looked like it. They were close. They had all the visual external marks of somebody who was there, but they did not actually believe the Lord. And so this is kind of the point of the book of Hebrews. And if you keep reading chapter 4, it gets just fantastically uh, captivating the way he uses. This is Psalm 95 that he keeps quoting from. And he says, Today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Because you may not hear his voice tomorrow. You may not hear it this afternoon. So if you hear his voice, that's his mercy calling you to repent now. And it's within that context that we get to the end of chapter 4. Uh, look down at the end of chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, of joints and the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We've heard that paragraph read. We may have even memorized it. But did you realize that it was in this context of the fact that Psalm 95, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, was spoken to the wilderness generation, also in the time of David and Saul, and in the time of Hebrews, and now. That's what it means that the word of God is living and active. It's the same word spoken. And if you hear it now, do not harden your heart. You may not hear it again. Now is the time. Today is the time to respond in faith. You may not get another chance. Um, and what the writer of the Hebrews wants to say is that the Word of God is Christ. He has spoken in a son. That's the opening line of Hebrews. So this takes us full circle. God has spoken in a son. Therefore, believe in the son. Believe Jesus Christ. There's nothing better. There's absolutely nothing better. There's nothing else. There's no plan B. There's no option for you if you walk away from Christ. So don't. 
Pay more close attention to what you've heard. Cling to what you've heard. Don't drift away. There's no salvation in any name under heaven except Jesus Christ. And for those who do trust him and put their faith in him and actually do believe, they have perfect salvation forever in his name. So, to recap, this passage is not saying that Christians can lose their salvation. True believers will persevere. But it is saying we live in a mixed community of people who might appear to be something they are not truly. And eventually they will fall away. They will eventually fall away. Now, the third question is why are we getting this warning? Why does Hebrews 6 actually say this? Because if you've been thinking critically, you might have been thinking, well, okay, Zach, if true Christians will persevere, and false Christians will fall away. Well, then why even give a warning? It's like if I tell my daughters, you are not allowed to sprout wings and fly away. Don't do that. Why would I tell them to do something that's impossible to happen? It's not a very good warning, is it? So what is the function, what's the purpose of this dire warning, this terrible warning for people that actually can't fall away? Have you ever thought about that? And so for many people, and many theologians, commentators, and Christian writers, they'll say the opposite of what I've been saying. They'll say, yes, you can fall. You absolutely can become unsaved. And I think that's a big mistake. Um, so I think it's actually a quite simple answer to that question. What good is the warning if true Christians will actually persevere? What good is that warning? Well, the answer, I think, is simply this. That warnings are one of the means by which God preserves us. Warning is one of the key ways that God actually does preserve Christians. The way that he keeps us, the way that he preserves us, the way that he holds us close to himself, is through warnings. It's not the only way, but it's one key way that he does preserve us to the end by giving us these reminders and these warnings. Warnings are the ways that God wakes us up and shakes us and provokes us and reminds us of what we truly have at stake. Warnings are the ways that God keeps us alert and renews our faith and renews our understanding of what we actually truly do believe. Warnings are the, one of the key ways that God reminds us of what we're saved from. So that jolt of fear that you get when you read this passage, that kind of twinge of fear, is actually a reassuring twinge of fear, isn't it? Because it actually tells you, I do love Christ. I do know I need Christ. I do believe Christ, and I want to believe in him more. And so that twinge of fear is actually a good sign. That's good. If that provokes you and makes you think, oh man, have I been drifting? Have I been lax? Have I been casual in my faith? That's a good thing. What you need to be worried about is if that passage doesn't provoke anything in you. That's the problem. That's a real big problem if you're not worried at all. Uh, just to, by way of illustration, 
the, about the way that God uses warnings. I remember a long time ago, we went to the beach, um, and our girls were really young, and I think it was Fiona, and she was just terrified of the beach. I was like, hoping she was going to have a good time. Because um, we lived in Scotland or Ireland at the time, and you, know, you don't get to do this very often, so we took her to the beach, and she just, was just crying and screaming and trying to hold her, because she thinks the waves are coming together. They're, they're coming. The waves are coming. And in a similar way that, just think about this, you know, those waves aren't going to hurt her at all. I've got her. I'm not going to throw her in. I'm not going to leave her on the beach unattended. Those waves aren't going to touch her. Now, objectively speaking, without me, they would destroy her, right? So the warnings are real. The danger is real. We're not, I mean, this, the ocean doesn't play games, right? That's a real danger, a serious danger. But she's not in any real danger with me. And yet when she sees the waves, she's just holding on tighter and tighter and tighter. She's like, do not let me go. Those waves are coming for me. And in a way, this is how God uses these warnings. The warnings, if you're a true Christian, united to Christ by faith, you've been born again, the waves, you're in God's hands, and he's not going to toss you in the water. He's not going to leave you on the beach unattended. He's going to preserve you, and the waves can't touch you. But those warnings, those waves, make you hold all the tighter. They make you grab all the tighter. Cling to Christ. Give me Christ. I want to hold you closer and tighter. Please hold on to me. I'm holding on to you. And so that's the function of the warnings. They're not actually telling you that if you're a true Christian, you can lose that. No, you're in God's hands. He's got you. With a perfect salvation forever and ever and ever. But the warnings drive you closer and they wake you up. And they keep your eyes open. And they keep you serious. They keep you sober. And they remind you of what's actually going to happen to those who do walk away. That's another function of these warnings, isn't it? It is for the Christian because it helps preserve us. It's one of the means by which God preserves us. But we also need to be serious and honest about what happens for those who do apostatize, who do walk away and leave the faith. Because it's no joke. The Bible has serious, serious warnings for those who come to a knowledge of the gospel, but not belief in the gospel. Right? You can know cognitively what the gospel says and not actually entrust yourself to it. The Bible has terribly, terribly distressing things to say about those people. Uh, another illustration, just a quick one, uh, before we uh, move towards wrapping up, is, you know, it's like our marriage, right? I'm married, you should probably know that by now, um, and I am fully confident in Kayla's faithfulness. And I'm actually confident in my own. I don't actually think, I'm not actually wondering, like, late at night, like, is this actually not going to, like, am I going to tomorrow, like, run off or something? I'm actually not worried about that. Yet, even though that's not going to happen, warnings are good for me. Warnings are good. I need reminders. I need to be alerted. I need to have my eyes open every now and again. It's good for me. Not, not because I'm some wayward person, but because I need that. It's good for me. And it's the same thing with other aspects of the Christian life as well. Do you stop praying just because God already knows what you need? No, he says pray. Why? Because it's good for you. 
Do we stop evangelizing and sharing the gospel because eventually people who are going to be saved will be saved? No. We keep sharing the gospel because it's good for us. God has ordained that he uses means to accomplish his will. He uses our prayer, he uses our evangelism, and he uses warnings to do his will. So to recognize that God uses these means to preserve us really helps to understand that I need to hear the warnings, I need to take them seriously. So let's do a little summary, and I want to make an application point to, to close. But for summary, who should have assurance of their salvation? Who can have assurance of salvation? Anyone who has cast themselves upon the mercy of Christ. His grace is sufficient for you, and you are safe in his arms. Who cannot, who should not have assurance? Those who have maybe said something about being a Christian, or being part of a Christian community, with never actually making that move to trust in Christ. Not just to know it, but to entrust themselves to believe, to put their faith in Christ. And who should hear the warning? Everyone. It's good for us. It's good for us. So let me um, uh, make a point of application here about the, the issue of being impossible. What, what does he mean by it's impossible to renew them to repentance? We're going to talk about that. Um, so we might conclude from this that if someone walks away, they're done. And there's no going back. And I understand that some commentators read it that way. Um, I, I actually don't think that's what the author is saying. There is a prominence to the word impossible and repentance. And in fact, when you get to verse 4, it's just stark. The word in Greek is just the first word. It's just impossible. It's meant to just grab hit you right there between the eyes. It's just impossible. And the question is, is it absolutely impossible for someone who has walked away to be restored to repentance? And I think that the answer to that is actually no. I'm not trying to contradict what's being said here. I'm trying to clarify. I think what the passage is saying is that it is impossible for us to restore someone to repentance. There's nothing for us as a Christian community to do. They are outside the bounds of our influence. If someone has walked away, has rejected Christ, has said no, has washed their hands and walked away, there's nothing we can do. It's impossible to do church discipline on somebody like that. It's impossible to, to you know, counsel somebody like that when they've decided to go beyond the bounds of the church. They have walked away. There's nothing we can do. So we are unable to restore them to repentance. Is it impossible for God to do that? No, I don't think so. And I'm not just making that up. We have a couple examples in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul actually does excommunicate somebody. Actually, quite literally, kicks them out of the church. Very, very interesting. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 1 Timothy chapter 1. You don't need to turn there. But what's really interesting is, in both cases, he says, I'm handing someone over to Satan. Terrible language. Awful language. I'm handing them over to Satan. In the case of 1 Corinthians 5, it's an unrepentant guy living in an incestuous relationship that's not repenting. Um, and then in 1 Timothy 1, we don't 
know all the details, but some guys named Alexander Hymenaeus, and he says, I've handed them over to Satan. So in both of those cases, we're dealing with apostasy resulting in excommunication. You're outside of the church now. And the Apostle Paul makes it explicit and clear that's what he's doing. Yet, the really interesting thing is that in both cases, both passages say there's a purpose for the excommunication. There's a reason why he kicks them out and hands them over to Satan. In the first case, in 1 Corinthians 5, it's for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul might be saved. And then in 1 Timothy 1, it's so that it may not, so that it be taught not to blaspheme. Really, really interesting. So in both cases, he has handed someone over to Satan, not as the final word, but with the expectation and hope that God would do something to restore them. So I think that Hebrews 6, read in the light of those two specific cases, I can, I feel confident to say that when we do recognize the impossibility of our attempts to renew someone to repentance, that's not saying that it's beyond God's ability. In fact, one of the reasons why we do church discipline and actually come to the point of excommunication is with the hope that God could do something that we cannot do, right? Is it impossible for us? Yeah, there comes a point where we can't do anything for someone who is deliberately, consciously walking away. But what we can do is entrust them to God, give it over to God, because He is able to do what is impossible for us. Isn't that right? Isn't it actually the message of the whole Bible? If you think about it, God is able to do far more than we can ask or think or imagine. He's actually able to do way more than we can imagine. And so I have to hold out hope and the confident expectation that those who do deliberately walk away, they're not, they're not beyond all hope, but it's in God's hands. We, we can do what we can. As a church, we do what we've been tasked with uh, by the apostle. But there comes a point where it's in God's hands. So if you're worried this morning about yourself, having committed apostasy, that's a good sign. To be worried about it means you haven't committed apostasy. Because those who commit apostasy aren't worried about it. They're happy with it. They've, they're at peace. They've made their decision. But what we have confidence about, what we have hope for, is that God is able to do beyond what we can see. And He can work in their hearts. He can work in their, um, in their lives in ways that we can't actually manipulate. We can't, do, we can't actually make that happen. But God is able to. And so I hold out hope that for those who have walked away, uh, God can do a work in their hearts to bring them back. And so we entrust them to Him. And I, I think it's probably fitting at this time to, to wrap it up and close. But I'll say a word of prayer. And just, uh, I want you to think of somebody, probably specifically in your mind, who you can probably think of, who might fit in this bill. And we want to pray for them now. Okay, so let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for the uh, strong words of mourning that um, do shock us and uh, wake us up because we, we do need these and they're good for us. But, Father, we uh, right now probably can't help but think of loved ones and people who are close to us who uh, are either on the verge of or have decided to walk away. And we want to lift them up to you uh, this morning as uh, the God uh, who can do far more than we can ask or think and who is able to do what we cannot do. And so for those people who appear to have walked away and rejected what they once professed, we want to offer up a, a sincere prayer for them and their souls that you would uh, uh, 
restore them again, if at all possible, if you would work with it in repentance and faith so that they might come back to the fold, they come back to the church, because we know that your grace is sufficient, not just for our sin, but for any who come to you in faith. So we pray, knowing and trusting that you are able to do that through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. <laughs>